This NASCAR season, every member of the Toyota Racing Team is doing their part to take the trophy home. Like 6th grader Melissa Kowalski, who changes true to true X on every true-false quiz she takes. All my teachers are Martin Truex Jr. fans now. Keep up the great work, Melissa. To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. NASCAR season is here, and everyone on the Toyota racing team is doing their part to perform at the highest level. From driver Ty Gibbs to amateur musician Russell Viper, who's working on the perfect pre-race pump-up track for the team. Start those Camrys up! Yeah! To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. The following is a special presentation of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. In 463 tries, finally, Michael Waltrip is going to win a NASCAR Winston Cup race, winning the Daytona 500, the biggest of them all. I knew that if I made it through turns one and two and turns three and four without my motor blowing up, I was going to win the race. The Motor Racing Network presents Daytona Speed Weeks 2001, the week that changed NASCAR. Dale Earnhardt gets turned sideways. He'll take Schrader. Earnhardt and Schrader are in the wall. We've lost Dale Earnhardt. When we lost our biggest star of NASCAR, things like that make people change and think, what can we do and how can we have prevented that? Brought to you by Chevy Silverado. Find new roads. By Sunoco. Fill up with top-tier certified Sunoco Ultratech today. By Advent Health. Feel whole. And by Toyota. For the latest Toyota racing information, visit toyotaracing.com. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome to a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live on the Motor Racing Network. I'm Susie Armstrong. Daytona 500 history is robust, punctuated with triumph and tragedy. And this season, veterans of NASCAR's garage and grandstands Recall a bittersweet Daytona Speed Weeks two decades ago. It was, and still is, a surreal storyline. NASCAR's biggest star swept up in a vicious crash in the final corner on the final lap of the Great American Race. In the tense moments that followed, four words dealt a stunning blow to generations of loyal fans. We've lost Dale Earnhardt. That fateful crash altered the sport forever and led NASCAR down a path to unprecedented changes in driver and crew safety. But it all began as normal as any speed weeks in history, as engines fired on a balmy Saturday afternoon for pole qualifying to set the front row for the Daytona 500 and the starting order for the Gatorade Twin 125s, the unpredictable 50-lap scrambles to make the big show. The excitement level for Dodge fans was ramping up in Daytona as retired veteran crew chief Ray Everham rolled into the garage with a livery of shiny new intrepids with youngster Casey Atwood and cup champion Bill Elliott at the controls. For the new team owner, the number 9 and 19 hot rods weren't so hot when they first took to the 2.5-mile super speedway, but as the green flew for qualifying, speeds improved. 
14th out to set time, million-dollar Bill was looking good on the high banks. Well, Bill Elliott uh, might have just surprised a few folks. Don't think he surprised himself. Elliott is the quickest. Bill Elliott has just turned the fastest lap of the day, 49.029 seconds of speed. He's the first driver to get up into the 183-mile-an-hour bracket, 183.565 miles an hour. That might do the trick. The late Barney Hall's instincts were right on as awesome Bill from Dawsonville stole the pole for the 43rd Daytona 500. It is pretty incredible. I mean, from the standpoint of, of what has transpired here in the last several weeks, and, you know, we, we tested here, and then we went to Talladega and tested, and we were a little bit disappointed in, in how we were running, and we just kept working with the stuff and getting a little bit better, and what Ray has put to the, brought to the table has really put everything together. For rookie team owner Everham, the emotions were flowing. It's really, really hard to explain. I'm still trying to find my place as a as a car owner and uh, stop trying not to be a baby, but every, I find myself getting all choked up here and there. My mom called, uh, you know, as soon as it, it was official that we got the pole and about cried like I was a kid again. So it's it's just, uh, it's a lot. It's a roller coaster ride. It has been a long, long and a uh, time and a lot of work and a lot of great people have worked really hard and that's just a I feel for all those people and to to have it pay off for them it's just a tremendous feeling. Outside pole winner Jerry Nadu failed post-qualifying inspection moving Stacy Compton to the front row at the wheel of the Mark Melling owned Kodiak Dodge. With qualifying in the books the Auto Racing Club of America took to the track the following Sunday afternoon for the 80 lap ARCA 200 the first official points-paying clash of Daytona Speed Weeks 2001. As the laps wound down, a relatively unknown driver from South Bend, Indiana, took the lead with 12 to go and brought it home for the victory. Here comes the finish. Ryan Newman down to the line. He will win the ARCA Series event here at the Daytona International Speedway. Newman is going to be doing a lot of racing this year. He said they're starting off the ABC Series. They're running ARCA at Daytona. Bush at Rockingham, then they're going to Las Vegas to run Cup. So that's your ABC, and they're going to be doing quite a bit of jumping around throughout this year. Well, it was huge. I remember on restart, I passed uh, Ricky Hendrick on the outside before we got to turn one. I remember kind of blocking, which I never liked to do, but I kind of had to do uh, because of the way the race was. Blocked Frank Kimmel going into turn three. Um, He could have probably turned me around and wrecked us both, but I knew that he was going to lift and and, um, you know, that, that set us up for a run to the checkered. And, um, you know, we had a great car. Um, it, was, it was a time when Altel was new to the sport. And, um, you know, we were doing good things on and off the racetrack. And um, winning the race in Daytona was uh, an amazing feeling. Just as the ARCA drivers finished their cool-down lap, a select group of cup competitors settled in for 70 hot laps and a potential big payday in the no-points, all-out dash for cash, the Bud Shootout. The field of 2000 season pole winners and past Bud shootout victors lined up with the late Dale Earnhardt Sr. in the clash for the first time since 1997. It's as good as anybody. I mean, everybody's going to be racing. It's uh, I'm probably going to go to the front and the back several times, just like everybody else. It's going to be a Russian roulette kind of thing, racing. By luck of the draw, Ken Schrader and Earnhardt sat side-by-side side in the front row as the green flew. Pontiac and Chevrolet side-by-side side on the front row. couple of Fords just behind them. Waiting to see what the Dodge is going to do. Bill Elliott is back in the 13th position. He'll have to do some shuffling early to get up near the front of the field. But as they've been saying all day, there will be a lot of shuffling going on. As the high-speed caution-free clash came to a climax, 
Tony Stewart held off the Wiley Earnhardt for the victory. Here they go up the banking for the final time. Is it lucky sevens for Earnhardt or 20 the hard way for Tony Stewart? Off the banking, Stewart by a car length. Stewart by a car length off four. Tony Stewart brings him back down to the line, looking behind him to see what Earnhardt may do. For now, he stays tucked in behind him. Tony Stewart is going to win the Budweiser shootout of 2001. Dale Earnhardt finishes second. Coming up, we'll continue our flashback with the top Speed Week storylines of 2001. And later, we'll take the green for the Gatorade Twin 125 qualifying races. Sir, are you aware you were going 40 miles an hour? This is a residential area. Sure, but I'm on my lawnmower. Wait, am I getting a ticket? No, I've just never seen anyone top nine miles an hour on one of those bad boys. And mow their entire lawn in 30 seconds? What got into you? Well, it did fuel up at Sunoco this morning. At Sunoco, we know how to fuel peak performance. We've been doing it for American Racing for over 50 years. Fuel your best. This is a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. Now, back to your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back to this special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. I'm Susie Armstrong. Thanks for joining us for a memorable trip back to the triumphs and tragedies of Daytona 500 Speed Weeks 2001. The return of Dodge to the Cup Series led the media buzz, with Ray Everham holding court on all of the major talk shows, including MRN's special edition of NASCAR Live, where Eli Gold and Ken Squire quizzed the new car owner on his year-long journey. Well, Eli, it really does start It starts with a plan, a lot of notebooks. Uh, certainly had to start a lot of things at the same time. The big challenge for me is... Because I'm not an engine person, I had to start an engine shop. So how do you start an engine shop? Well, we had a building that the Pepsi Bush cars were in that I owned, and we turned that into an engine shop. My partner, Ed Guzzo, worked on the engine side of things, and I worked on the development of the car body and chassis. We did the uh, aero development and testing, things like that, while Ed was putting the engine shop and and helping develop the engine. So we got that going. Then we had to start uh, looking... Obviously, for crew members, pit crews, get our drivers sorted out. I had to learn an awful lot about uh, business. With the new season came new television partnerships, with Fox Broadcasting offering live coverage of the 500. Up in the booth, seasoned broadcaster Mike Joy joined NASCAR Cup champion Daryl Waltrip and veteran crew chief Larry McReynolds to call the action. Two experienced NASCAR competitors about to execute their rookie stint on the air. For McReynolds, the learning had just begun. Unlike other sports that maybe start a new broadcast team, you can build up with preseason and regular season, and then you have the big event. Well, as we all know in NASCAR, you come right out of the box, and the biggest event of the year is the first event. It's 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 backwards from all other sports, you might say. But, you know, they never talked about we want to be better than CBS has done it or, or Turner or ESPN. That, they, they never talked about that. But they definitely, with technology and the way they went about doing things, they there's no question they wanted to take it to a new level. As Speed Weeks 2001 wound up to full song, Eli Gold and Ken Squire kept the fans informed and interactive on the Motor Racing Network taking questions live on the air for drivers, including the late Dale Earnhardt, who proudly chatted about his newest wheelman at Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, Michael Waltrip. Clemens, Maryland, hello. I have a question for Dale. How does he think Michael Waltrip's going to do during the whole season, and uh, what's his expect? 
expectations of uh, Michael this year? Well, I expect him to win. <laughs> That's what I've told him. But uh, I think he's doing, going to do well. Michael's a seasoned driver, and he's got a good head on his shoulders. I give him the resources to work with. I think he'll be a winner. Uh, we feel good about what we're seeing in, in the test, and we've already seen here in practice and qualifying here at Daytona. So we're looking forward to good things there. It's like any other team. you got to work hard. you got to focus, and you put it all together. And I think Michael's ready for that, and, and he's going to do a good job for us. For Waltrip, the months leading up to Daytona 2001 are still clear in his memory today. The, the goals were to win, and it was a new team, but it was with an established organization. And all Dale ever said to me uh, when we were fishing on a boat or hanging out at the at the farm is, "You would win in my cars. You would def you you better win in my cars." That was his directive, and so um, probably from <clears throat> September of 2000 till the last turn on the last lap of the Daytona 500 was the best time of my whole life, uh, my career, um, because of the anticipation as 2000 wound down and seeing what was being built for me and going to a team that manufactured everything and then having Dale as my as my mentor, as my coach. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of times he he thought I was a pretty good driver, but I hadn't done a really good job of managing my career, and he wanted to take that over. I just remember, you know, we had a, a great time out in Cheryl's Ford, living on the farm, kids running around, dogs playing, and uh, I've just never been happier. In an eerie bit of foreshadowing, Joe Gibbs Racing's Tony Stewart addressed a topic midweek that would become a major concern. Hi, Tony. Uh, I congratulate you on the Bud Shootout. Thank you. And I was asking about the Hans device. Are uh, Joe's Gibbs Racing and your uh, Home Depot Pontiac looking into that for your safety? Actually, we are. I think Bobby and I both are looking at it right now. Um, I met with the guy on, I guess it would have been Friday morning, the guy that actually developed the Hans device. And the, the only reason I haven't tried it yet is because I've heard that drivers are having problems getting out of the car with their helmets on. And uh, I'm claustrophobic, so if I think I'm going to get trapped inside the car, it even makes me worse. So you're claustrophobic i've been claustrophobic all my life and it wasn't a deal where my sister took a blanket and put it over my head for five minutes and i got spooked after that but uh, i don't know why but i've been i've always been claustrophobic but uh, i never it never bothered me till i got in indy cars and winston cup cars because uh, all the other cars i drove had big big open cockpits in them and it never bothered me to be strapped in a car before but you know to be honest though we are looking at it they keep making new versions of the hans device and uh I'm actually getting a helmet fitted up for one right now, and I think Bobby's getting one uh, fitted up also. And we're gonna, when we go to our next test session, I'm gonna try it. I, I definitely believe in it. I've seen the tapes of, of how it works in the uh, in the sled tests and everything like that, and it's definitely gonna save some lives if uh, if they get it perfected. More of this special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live coming up next. We'll revisit the Gatorade Twin 125 qualifying races, and later the fateful 43rd running of the Daytona 500. This is a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. Now, back to your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back. After a decade of unstoppable growth, NASCAR was flying high with Earnhardt, Wallace, Gordon, Martin, Stewart, Labonte, and other household names packing grandstands from coast to coast. 
and the 2001 season promised to deliver even more. With a new network television package, a livery of shiny new Dodge Intrepids in the garage, and revised aerodynamic rules aimed at tightening up the field on the super speedways. As fans filed in for Thursday's Gatorade 125s to set the field for the 43rd Daytona 500, anticipation was running high. Hi, everybody. I'm Joe Moore, along with Barney Hall, welcoming you to our live coverage of the Gatorade 125s. These races mean different things to different people, Barney. For many who have enough speed to fall back on or maybe have provisionals from last year's car owner points, this is a sort of a shakedown. But there are a number of guys out there, nine to be exact, that uh, will not be here after today. Today's do or die. The big storyline for the first clash was Dale Earnhardt, the clear dominator of the 50-lap sprints for 10 straight years. Starting 14th today, though, a little bit farther back than usual. How confident are you to put it in victory lane? Well, we hope we uh, can draft up in here and get, get to the front. We've got, we got quite a few laps to get there, so if uh, we can just work with these guys and not get no trouble early, that's the... The biggest thing that happens is everybody wants to race too soon, and if we just get up there and not lose that lead pack, I think the lead pack, if they get strung out, we, you know, these guys back there racing could uh, lose the draft. But uh, we're going to try to keep her in line go to the front. On a warm afternoon under partly cloudy skies, the first of the twins took the green, with Bill Elliott on the pole in the bright red UAW Dodge. Down the line, green flag is in the air. Bill Elliott and Dale Jarrett come up through the gearbox, race off toward turn number one. It takes uh, about three-quarters of a lap to really get these restrictor plate motors wound out. On lap six, new DEI pilot Michael Waltrip rumbled out of the pocket and made himself known. First time out for Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. Michael Waltrip wants to lead at Daytona. Didn't take very long for the shuffling to begin to send guys from the front of the pack back to the middle of the field. They'll complete six laps across the line this time, and Michael Waltrip leads them down. Yeah, the duel in the racing was wild, as you know. We saw a preview of, of what the Daytona 500 was going to look like at Talladega in you know in September of 2000 when when Dale won came from way back like 18th to win in the last couple of three laps and so the racing we knew it would be intense with the drafting and the aerodynamic rules as they were near the halfway mark the wily Dale Earnhardt took his turn at the point I believe we've seen this script before as Earnhardt clamors to the front now with four to go the third and final caution flew Compliments of Ron Hornaday Jr. in the A.J. Foyt Pontiac. Ron Hornaday out of control, spins all the way down to the apron of the racetrack. A couple of other cars dodge that as they work their way back into turn number one, but Caution comes out of the speedway. The late Caution set up a one-lap dash to the checkers with Earnhardt up front and vulnerable. Here comes the land rush to the inside, and Sterling Marlin goes to the lead. Now, Jerry Nadeau, three wide, will flash by Earnhardt and pick up second. Here they come back down to the line to wrap it up. It is Sterling Marlin showing the way. Bonsai moved by Jimmy Spencer, four wide through the trioval. He squeezes to the inside of Jeff Gordon and Andy Houston, but it's going to be Sterling Marlin picking up the win. For Michael Waltrip, a miscue behind the wheel cost the veteran driver the race, as Waltrip described in his documentary, blink of an eye i'd done everything right you know did everything perfect um put myself in a position to win the race and i just i couldn't believe i did this um you know when, when it was time to go from third to fourth and and I, I timed it perfectly i had a perfect run i just i didn't shift in time and i got into the rev limiter and instead of using the momentum i had and putting the move on i planned i just and I mentioned the, the great times. That was as low as I've been, you know, in months. 
because I'm like, no way, you, you, you're a veteran. You've done this forever. You can't make that dumb mistake. I remember vividly thinking, you know, I don't want to get anywhere near, near Dale. He's going to be pissed. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, as fate would have it, I was trying to walk from the garage to my motorhome, and the door swung open on his bus. He said, get in here. I was like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And so I walk in, I said, I'm sorry, man, I messed up. He said, what are you talking about you messed up? I said, I, I didn't, I missed a shift. I didn't, I didn't execute. He said, I said, I said, I'd have won that race. And he said, no, no, you wouldn't have. I would have won. I, didn't, I was going to win that. Don't worry about that race. That race is behind us. We got to talk about the one on Sunday and we're going to win it. How we're going to win it. He said, it's going to take teamwork. It's going to take me, you, Dale Jr. We got to do everything we can together to push and, and make sure we're up front when it matters. And that was the first time in my life, I'd really had, whether it was my my owner, a fellow driver, or a friend, make a plan. Tell us what the plan was, how we were going to use, you know, use each other to go win. I said, yeah, bud, I'm all in. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Following the spirited first Gatorade twin, expectations were high for the second clash. Pace car peels off, heads down, pit road. They come down to the line, 26 cars getting ready to go in the second of the Gatorade 125s. On the front line, Tony Stewart, Stacey Compton, Ward Burton, Mike Skinner, Ricky Craven as they zip down to the line. Dale Earnhardt Jr. led the most laps in the red number eight Budweiser Chevrolet. But as the final lap unfolded, Mike Skinner was there to challenge in one of the closest finishes in Daytona history. Dale Earnhardt Jr. at the bottom of the racetrack tries to break the draft, sweeps right down to the yellow line of this race down. Who is going to win it? It will be Earnhardt Jr. That's going to be a photo finish, but I'm going to call it Earnhardt Jr. and Mike Skinner on the outside. The computer says Mike Skinner wins it. Dale Earnhardt Jr. finishes second, Jeff Burton third. They are Don't going get to the photo camera party to find out for sure that was so close. Talk about a nail-biter right down on the line. Skinner did everything he could to hang on to the top spot. Dale Earnhardt Jr. was all over him there at the start-finish line, and now they're going to the camera to find out for sure who got the win. Next, we'll let them truckers roll on the high banks of Daytona and recall the 2001 Grand National season-opening clash packed full of future stars and later the 43rd Daytona 500. This is a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. Now, back to your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back. Speed Weeks 2001 went tailgating on Friday, February 16th, as the NASCAR Camping World Truck Series took to the high banks for their second Daytona International Speedway season opener. 56-year-old Joe Rutman claimed the pole for the Florida Dodge Dealers 250, confirming the youth versus experience theme as NASCAR veterans faced off with 11 rookies in the 100-lap contest. Field now coming down to the line for the start of the Florida Dodge Dealers 250. Pace truck on pit road, green flag is in the air, and we are underway. Caution slowed the event eight times with the final yellow out with just one to go. On the green-white checker restart, the Wiley Rutman held off rookie Ricky Hendrick for victory at Daytona. He has two third-place finishes in the Daytona 500, hoping to win here today in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series, and he will. Joe Rutman takes the win in the Florida Dodge Dealers 250. As the dust settled in victory lane, the international race of champions rolled onto the Super Speedway for a 40-lap sprint with 12 drivers representing NASCAR, Indy Racing League, and championship auto racing teams at the wheels of identically prepared Pontiac Firebirds. 
MRN's Kurt Becker remembers. I think one of the races that gets lost in the shuffle from 2001 Speed Weeks is the IROC, the International Race of Champions race, which took place on Friday, two days before the 500. And Eddie Cheever had been racing door to door with Dale Earnhardt in a battle for the lead with like two laps to go. And Cheever came down on him and ended up making contact and, and Dale's car spun and went off through the grass. And then uh, on the on the cool down lap, Dale waited for Eddie coming through the trioval and and gave his bumper a whack and kind of sent Eddie spinning down to the apron. And and then when they all got out of the car afterward, Dale, who, who had a lot of respect for Eddie and vice versa, as Eddie did for Dale, Dale went over and and was having fun and, and cut up and kind of clowned around with him and, and made it clear, look, I'm I know you didn't mean to wreck me and I was just kind of playing with you there at the end. But it's I I, I like to think of of that IROC race as a vintage Dale Earnhardt moment. And and those are the types of moments that I like to think of from Speed Weeks 2001 when I reflect back and, and think of Dale Earnhardt. The following afternoon, Speed Weeks 2001 popped into third gear for the NASCAR Xfinity Series Saturday season opener. The Napa Auto Parts 300 took the green under cloudy skies with Front Row Joe, a.k.a. Joe Nemechek, on the pole for the 120-lap romp. Coming down to the line, Joe Nemechek, Randy LaJoy on row one. Back in row two, P.J. Jones, Jeff Purvis. Green is in the air, and they head off to turn number one. With just 14 laps on the scoreboard, rain moved in to Central Florida, forcing NASCAR to stop the action for one hour and 40 minutes. When the racing resumed on lap 22, Scott Wimmer and Jeff Purvis dominated. But in the closing laps, two-time Xfinity Series champion Randy LaJoy went to work on Purvis. He tries to power to the outside. Joe Nemechek does not go with him. Joe stays in line. Purvis is finding himself out of the draft. LaJoy's got the lead and Purvis is going backwards. With two to go, trouble unfolded in the battle for second. Matt Kenseth gets into Nemechek, turns him around right up into traffic. Purvis into the wall. Nemechek spins right in the middle of traffic. Jeff Purvis, Joe Nemechek in trouble as the field rushes by them on the back straightaway. And the leader's working up now towards turn number three. Randy LaJoy, here he comes off the corner. LaJoy with a challenge. It could be the final challenge of the day if they can get to him. Here they come now off the corner. Randy LaJoy shows the way after the crash on the back straightaway. Right behind him, Kevin Harvick trying to make something happen, but the white flag is out, and this race will end after the crash on the back straightaway, and Randy LaJoy is going to win the Napa 300 for the third time. Up next, we'll revisit the 43rd running of the Great American Race, the Daytona 500, on this special edition of NASCAR Live. This is a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. Now, back to your host, Susie Armstrong. Thanks for joining us as we crank up the 2021 racing season with a flashback to Speed Weeks 2001. After an exciting, eventful prelude, it was time for the Super Bowl of stock car racing, the 43rd running of the Daytona 500. There is an excitement in the air here, Barney, that you only feel once a year. Over 200,000 people have packed in the grandstands here at the Daytona International Speedway to see if maybe their favorite driver can win the Daytona 500 and perhaps to get a glimpse of who will be a championship contender this year. Mild temperatures and blue skies greeted 43 drivers and teams, all dreaming of the coveted Harley J. Earls trophy and a Daytona 500 championship. Piloting the Roush Fenway Ford, 2004 Cup champ Kurt Busch was a Daytona 500 rookie that crisp race morning. I mean, I, 
I was blown away by how big and how prestigious and just the energy level of that race and the fans everywhere and, and the flyovers and the pageantry and just this, oh my gosh, this is, this is Daytona and I've got a car to go race. DEI driver, Michael Waltrip. I had a moment that Sunday morning to myself. I remember it like it was yesterday. Our truck was parked down at the end of the garage because, you know, we didn't have any points. We were a new team. There was, you know, no one around. And I just, I was up in the trailer talking to the boys. And when it was time to, to head to my bus, I went and sat on the front of the tractor trailer and just looked out at the track and, the, you know, the scenery and just said, don't force it. Don't, don't, put, don't put yourself in a bad position in order to try to make a move early because you, you know, you gotta, you gotta be there at the end. And I knew how excited I was and, and, he, and I probably am thankful Thursday happened the way it did because it, you know, put me in my place a bit. I might have, you know, had I won that race, I might've been like, yeah, you wait till Sunday. And instead I, you know, I just kind of felt like I needed to be relaxed and I needed to be patient. As the Motor Racing Network signed on to stations from shore to shore and around the globe, the late Barney Hall couldn't help but kid with the man starting inside the fourth row, the 1998 Daytona 500 champion. Dale Earnhardt will start from seventh position today, and if there is such a thing as an always favorite when you come to a racetrack, Earnhardt is it when you come to Daytona. He's looking for his second Daytona 500 win today. He'll be turning 50 years old in April, and Winston Kelly, tell him to go out there and represent us senior citizens good today. Well, let's see what he says about that. Barney Hall just talking about you going out and representing the senior citizens very well. You're not that old. Easy now. I'm not 50 yet. Just take it easy, guys. You know, I got a lot of years of ra racing left. I don't uh, don't talk about me yet. I mean, when I go to start sitting on the porch a little more, then you know, you talk about me being a senior citizen. But right now, I'm I'm having to pay full, full price at the cafeteria. As 150,000 fans in the sold-out grandstands rose to their feet, the 43rd Daytona 500 took the green. Here is the Pontiac Aztec pulling off. That's the pace car for the Daytona 500 going to pit road. They're coming down for the start. Terry Bradshaw, the honorary starter, puts the green out and they are underway. And on the break, Bill Elliott wastes no time and diving out front all by himself. Just as a handful of laps clicked off the scoreboard, Penske pilot Rusty Wallace took an early excursion to pit road. Now two cars slow near the back of the field. Rusty Wallace going way up high on the banking. He's in trouble. So too is Terry Labonte. Rusty Wallace Wallace comes onto pit road, locks up the brakes, see a lot of smoke coming from the car. Let's follow that pit stop for Rusty. Well, that's the right front tire, Barney. Right front tire is cut on the car, so they're going to jack it up. I was almost a lap down throughout that race, and then finally, late in the race, I got my lap back, and then I got in a draft that was unbelievable. I had a lot of cars in front of me, and they really stirred up the wind. And again, I had a really great handling car and a fast car. And I used that draft to my advantage, and I was able to fly through the field. Meanwhile, Kurt Busch darted the Roush Fenway Ford in and out of the draft, mixing it up with the likes of the Intimidator. Kurt Busch gets that free push to the front. He'll tighten in on Sterling Marlin. Busch goes up the banking by design. I don't know. He's sliding up a bit too high. He can't get the run off the corner. You know, as a racer and you're a rookie, you don't digest a lot that's around you you're not aware of your surroundings. And I, I swore I was in the middle lane, but maybe I was hogging up the middle and the outside lane and Senior wasn't having anything of it. And I was in his way. And when he when I saw the finger out the window, I'm like, 
I don't know. I didn't know what I was doing wrong. And of course, I never got to, I never got, sadly, never got to talk to him afterwards, watching tape. It just looked like I was in the wrong lane, of course. And he's going to be somebody that's just not going to check up. And he's not going to help you deal with it. He's just going to steamroll you over. As the Great American Race reached the halfway mark, Ward Burton was in command at the wheel of the Bill Davis Racing number 22 Caterpillar Dodge. Ward Burton has led the most laps so far this afternoon, and that's not saying a whole lot. He's taken his turn at the top of the field five times. We burn up one of our tests to go to Talladega about two weeks before Speed Weeks. Everything that we added to that car of adding little pieces here and there, whether it be a little bit of something on the seat post or a little bit of something on the deck lead or a little bit of something on the nose face you pick that car up. That car responded those two days to Talladega a little bit more than normal. And we had some other things, I don't want to go way into it, but we had some other things up on the car that uh, NASCAR probably wouldn't have been happy with. For whatever reason, that car was just responding that day. And so we went to Speed Week. We knew we had a fast car, but we just did not get the balance right till late in the uh, week of Speed Week. The fast-paced contest finally slowed for the second caution of the day with only 43 laps to go. We got trouble coming down into the trial where one car goes into the outside wall, spins down on the apron of the racetrack, and caution immediately comes on the speedway. Cars going every which way to keep from hitting the car that got out of control, Joe. That is Kurt Busch, who got sent spinning sideways. He's had a stellar afternoon today. He made contact with another car. We see some smoke. I ended up in a wreck with, with Joni Machek. Um, I saw the high lane developing as far as the draft. And I was coming through three and four, digging on the bottom. I'm like, man, I got to get high. I got to get high. That's what I was thinking in, in my in my mind. Like, I got to get to the high groove. And Spotter said, clear high, clear high. So I quick moved over, and Nemechek was there. And Jack Rouse talked to me afterwards. He goes, you wrecked my car. And I said, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I did. It was me driving. I wrecked. He goes, oh, I, I positioned you for failure in that conversation because I thought you'd blame the spotter. And I said, spotter said clear high, but I'm driving and I'm responsible for the car. And I think him and I bonded after that moment of, I'm sorry, I wrecked your car. Yes, sir. When we return, we'll take you to the checkers and the solemn, sobering aftermath of the 2001 Daytona 500. This is a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. Now, back to your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back. The 2001 Daytona 500 was one of the most competitive races in NASCAR history with 49 lead changes. And Ward Burton, Dale Earnhardt, Michael Waltrip, and Sterling Marlin all logging double digits at the front. As the high-speed contest drew to a close, a dozen cars appeared to have a legitimate shot at the 500 championship. But that all changed in a split second with 26 laps to go. And now trouble. Stewart is in trouble on the backstretch. Stewart's car up in the air and over barrel rolling, turning gyrations. It's a big wreck on the back straightaway. At least six, seven, eight, maybe a dozen, maybe a dozen and a half cars all connect and collide on the backstretch. Those involved, Robbie Gordon. Also the car of Kenny Wallace, he's involved. Terry Labonte is involved. John Andretti, also other damaged machines. Jeff Burton, also Dale Jarrett and others. Ward Burton as well, all crash and collide. The backstretch is a junkyard on the back straightaway. Ward Burton was one of the first to be swept up in the melee. We had all just pitted under green. 
And uh, man, I don't mean to talk about people negatively because I've, I've made just as many mistakes as anybody, but Robbie Gordon, I don't know if he took on two tires or what, but coming off of two, he didn't hit me once. He hit me three times. The third time turned me into the 20 car and, uh, you know, wrecked, I think it was 17 of us. Um, you know, the outcome of that day would have been different had that accident not happened. We were passing Tony Stewart for third, and I don't know exactly what would have happened, but the eight car and the 15 car would have had a race on their hands, what I could tell, what I can guarantee would have happened. Even third place finisher Rusty Wallace suffered damage in the massive 19 car pileup. I know that was the one that just tore the right side of the car to smithereens. It really messed it up big time. And uh, I know when the race was over, I remember getting out of the car, looking behind the right front tire and going, oh my gosh, how in the world did this car ever run this fast uh, with half the body missing behind the right front tire? Uh, but, you know, I finished third in the Daytona 500. And I got out of the car uh, happy that I finished third. And that was about it. I really didn't know anything else uh, until, that, uh, until later on about what really happened. But I do know that I was happy because I went from being a lap down to getting the lap back to flying through the field to pulling up in the third position and crossing the line and having a better Daytona 500 I had in the past. As the last sweeper truck ducked into the infield, the Great American Race resumed with 20 to go and Michael Waltrip out front. With 10 circuits remaining, Waltrip showed the way with Dale Earnhardt Jr. second and his father and team owner Dale Earnhardt Sr. directly behind in third. For Waltrip, the closing laps are still clear in his memory. The main thing that was going on for, for me and you know people at home and, and nobody could really see was the amount of lifting I was doing in order to make sure I didn't get too big of a lead. While Michael Waltrip changes lanes again, drops down to the inside to lend some assistance to Dale Earnhardt Jr. It'll work. Matter of fact, Earnhardt Jr. has to jump on the binders. He almost collects Waltrip in three. Dale Jr. was, you know, he was right on me. But then the, the mess that Dale was in, three wide and, and all the things that were going on, he wasn't getting the pushes up to me like, like he really would, would need in order to make a move. I assumed that every lap I looked in that mirror and assumed he was going to pass me. You know, something was going to happen. He was going to have to, he's going to try to pass me. So I was blocking, or running my line, making sure I stayed where I thought he wanted to be but mainly just letting off the gas and, and you know rolling back to him so the, the big run didn't really develop. This crowd is on their feet. They want to see the finish of the Daytona 500. They'll look at the white flag when they cross the short finish line. Michael Waltrip ahead of Earnhardt Jr. by just two car lengths. You know, when we came off turn four to take the white flag, I looked in my mirror and I could see where Dale was, which was, was fairly close to me and, and what, what was going on behind him and I, I knew that if I ran the bottom of the racetrack and I made it through turns one and two and turns three and four without my motor blowing up or a tire blowing out, I was going to win the race. You know, I, I, I could see there was no way it was going to, they could get to me. And um, as I exited turn four, just what I had thought was the case. You know, I, I, I could just see a, a big, big red car in my in my mirror and some dicing in the back and I I felt I felt like I was going off turn four to get the checkered flag and 
and it was going to be the best day ever. Coming down to the finish, though, it is Michael Waltrip trying to hold off Dale Earnhardt Jr. in 463 tries. Finally, Michael Waltrip is going to win a NASCAR Winston Cup race, winning the Daytona 500, the biggest of them all. As Waltrip's victory lane celebration turned to a somber gathering, former NASCAR president Mike Helton held an emotional news conference to inform the world of a grim reality. After the accident and turn four at the end of the Daytona 500, uh, we've lost Dale Earnhardt. Rusty Wallace recalls the moment Earnhardt lost control of his number three Chevrolet. You know, that, that crash going into turn three, I just remember having an incredible head of speed. And I remember Dale being uh, alongside Sterling Marlin going through. And I remember those two kind of bouncing off each other, uh, entering turn three. And I remember they went down low when that happened. And it opened up uh, a little over a car width for me in the middle of the track, and I just went right through there. And as I was going, uh, with a head of steam going, I remember Earnhardt uh, losing it on the bottom of the track and just flying across the front of my hood. He missed my car. We, we missed hitting each other by almost about an inch, maybe two inches. And I remember uh, Sterling and, and, um, and Dale battling down on the bottom of the track. And like I say, uh, Dale comes across the track and up into the wall. And I remember going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I just missed him. And then I went on to finish third. And like I might have mentioned earlier, I, I was just elated because I had a great finish. And I, and I missed a big wreck. I had no idea what the outcome of that 500 was going to be. For Michael Waltrip, faith helped him cope with the vast spectrum of emotions to follow. The only person you could turn to was God and just say, you know, that was his plan for that day. We don't know... We know that, you know, we're put on earth for a, a certain period of time. And if you're a believer, you believe that, that those days are numbered from the time you start. So you just say, you know, God, God had a different plan than we had. Um, that's, that's, how, that's how you deal with it. Nothing else makes any sense. But one thing's for certain, it, it's, you know, 20 years later and it, it still hurts the same. In a moment... NASCAR's reaction to the tragic loss of the sport's biggest star. This is a special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live. Now, back to your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome back. In the weeks and months after the tragic death of Dale Earnhardt, one thing was clear. The tall, cool man in black and white who changed NASCAR from the day he hit the gas in 1975 at Charlotte Motor Speedway the Intimidator was about to change NASCAR again. What followed was a barrage of technical advances over the next two decades, improving everything from the crash wall to the cockpit. Ward Burton recalls how NASCAR got right to work. The first thing they did very quickly is they started checking every single car of how the seat was placed, how it was mounted, where the seat belts were, just everything that I call around creature comfort. They've even gone to the point now, you know, when those cars as small as I am, my head was right on the window net because we're trying to get all that weight as far as the left we can. So now they've moved the seat over more in the middle of the car, which obviously helped a lot with Ryan Newman basically walking out of his crash this past few weeks. You know, then 
Then we mandatory full face helmets, mandatory horns devices. I mean, if you look at uh, the things that we were wearing, I was wearing an old strap that uh, that Bill Simpson had designed that was just hooking on with tethers on the back of my helmet. Uh, so that that was a big change. The way the seats were made, with all the sled tests and all they've done, you know, now they have certain requirements. They check the seats. It's, the seats are registered within a data box. Key among the best innovations is the steel and foam energy reduction barriers, the now familiar safer wall system, stretching for nearly 500 miles around every NASCAR track. For Michael Waltrip, it was a huge step. The biggest innovation to me, and I can tell you this without even hesitating one second, is a safer wall. Because you run into a concrete wall at 180 miles an hour, it's the most violent, vicious, ringing sound feeling in the world. It's just bone crushing. And I, I tell you that to tell you this, in 04, I think it was, 03 or 04, I, I blew a right front at Homestead. And it was really the first time that I had been down low in the corner, blew a right front, and headed up toward that outside wall. And it was the last race of the year, and, and uh, me and the family were gonna go to Turks and Caicos. And as soon as that tire blew out, I'm like, Daddy ain't going to Turks and Caicos, this is gonna hurt. Cause it was that angle that I'd experienced before where it just knocks the snot out of you. And I hit that wall, and I said, well, well darn, that didn't hurt. It didn't hurt at all. I guess we can leave early for Turks and Caicos because it tore the heck out of the car. <laughs> but um, just, you know, just that feeling of, of that no one will hopefully ever have to hit a concrete wall again is something that, you know, I'm very thankful for. For many drivers and fans, the memory of the 2001 Daytona 500 is bittersweet. Fates, triumphs, and tragedies, the usual kind we all expect from Daytona Speed Weeks, dealt everyone an unexpected blow. And still, to this day, the memory is surreal. Summing up the big picture, 1989 NASCAR Cup Series champion Rusty Wallace puts it in perspective. It was probably the most influential race because Dale was our biggest star, and we lost our biggest star, and it really shook up everything when it comes to safety. When it comes to the installation of belts, how many years you're allowed, or how long you're allowed to have a set of belts in your car, there was cars out there that had belts that were in the cars for many, many years and never had a problem at all, you know. Uh, then the NASCAR got involved in about how to help on the installation of the belts, where they be installed properly. They helped that. Then the soft wall or uh, the soft the, the barrier came about. That was one thing. The Hans device came on. Then general construction of the car inside, safety measures and stuff like that uh, came on. So it, what instead of just having a more of a slower approach to change. Uh, Dale's death brought a lot of change. We hope you've enjoyed this special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live and this look back at Speed Weeks 2001, the week that changed NASCAR. Tune in tomorrow night as the Motor Racing Network brings you live coverage of the Bush Clash from Daytona International Speedway beginning at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Until next time, I'm Susie Armstrong. 
This special Daytona 500 edition of NASCAR Live has come to you from the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, and was brought to you by Chevy Silverado, find new roads. By Advent Health, feel whole. By Sunoco, fill up with top-tier certified Sunoco Ultratech today. And by Toyota. For the latest Toyota racing information, visit toyotaracing.com. Tonight's broadcast was produced by Rich Culbreth. The executive producer for MRN is Ryan Horn. Remember to visit MRN.com for all the latest news and information. NASCAR Live is produced under an exclusive license with NASCAR. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. Buying a house can feel like you're going 200 miles per hour in bumper-to-bumper traffic with a dirty windshield and the sun in your eyes. Ruoff Mortgage has the technology, expert staff, and resources to simplify the process while speeding up the time it takes to get clear to close. So while getting a loan can seem intimidating, Ruoff Mortgage will have you opening the door to your new home fast and stress-free. Visit Ruoff.com to learn more. That's Ruoff.com.